Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the um, director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I couldn't be more delighted than to introduce our speaker today, Amit Chowdhury. Amit's a, a novelist, a poet, an essayist, a critic, and a musician. He was born in Calcutta and educated in Bombay, London, and Oxford, and he's currently the Professor of Contemporary Literature at uh, the University of East Anglia and he's a member of the Royal Society of Literature. Amit's the author of seven novels. The first of them was A Strange and Sublime Address and most recently he's been the author of Odysseus Abroad and Friends of My Youth, published just a couple of years ago. They are, I think, very distinctive works. They're attentive and gentle and atmospheric. And they've received wide and deep recognition. In fact, I believe you've had seven major awards for your, for your novels alone. But Amit's work, that's only just part of his corpus. He's published numerous poems, essays, literary criticism, and he's also performed and recorded music, Indian classical music, the songs of Tagore, and what he calls experimental music. And in addition, he's engaged in forms of activism, one of which concerns architectural heritage, particularly in Calcutta, and a second with something that he calls literary activism, which, as I understand it, amongst other things, challenges the sort of over-specialisation of academic knowledge. Well, as you can see, uh, Amit Chowdhury is quite a remarkable person, and he's going to be speaking to us for about 40, 45 minutes, something like that, and then we should have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. But before he does that, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Amit Chowdhury. Thank you, Robin, for that introduction and uh, <clears throat> for inviting me here. And wonderful to see you again after. Uh, what? I think I last saw you in 1988. <laughs> so, do the arithmetic. Um, <clears throat> Um, so, I've been thinking about modernity for quite some time, uh, what it is, what it means, because it seems to have different meanings. It also seems to have different owners. Some, some cultures seem to own modernity, others seem to um, have a kind, a kind of um, relationship of having tried on modernity, of having... Um, Try to ad adopt it, uh, either rejected it or embraced it to a certain extent. Um, there is, there is that kind There's of a echo. terrible, terrible echo. But uh, I think uh, is someone on the case with that? Okay. Not quite sure what we should do about it. <laughs> So, 
Perhaps we need a bit more modernity. I mean, I certainly don't want to listen to my to myself. I, I'm sorry that you have to do it, but. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, uh, one, if once we get that sorted, because it is quite distracting. It is distracting. It's uh, deeply distracting, in fact. Sure. So will you switch that off? <coughs> yeah. Does this does this work? Yeah. Is this better? There's a slight echo, but. But maybe it's not as. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. So should that be switched off? That one. Do you want to try that? Switching that off. That that speaker off. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. So, if you just switch that off, because maybe that's the one which is causing the trouble. I think it should be fine now, sorry. It should be fine? Okay. okay. Sorry. So, I was talking about who owns modernity, what is modernity. And um, I'll begin with, a, with just a small anecdote, because I have a, I have a particular understanding of modernity, because I'm, I'm so, I was so moved by it and formed by it. And retrospectively, I realized what I'd been formed by and moved by was modernity. <clears throat> and here, here I, I'm thinking of the city of Calcutta, which is where I, I believe, I came to believe retrospectively, I first encountered modernity. I became aware of, of Calcutta as, as constituting my encounter of modernity through another encounter, an echo. And that happened in New York in 1979 before it was packaged, before it became the first city of the world. Um, in 1979, New York was not in great shape in terms of its economy. It, it had a, a, a reputation for being um, a dirty and dangerous city. If you visited New York, you were advised to avoid the subway. This was 79. And the world was still not a, a unipolar world. The Soviet Union existed, as you know. And so it was a world with, with various power centers. So to go to, to, to America was to discover a new a place, something which is very difficult to do now. The last time I felt I was discovering something new by traveling was when I went to Karachi. Um, when the old excitement of, of, of discovery came, came to me. So anyway, there I was in... For, uh, my first stop was uh, San Diego, visiting a cousin. I was doing quite well. I, didn't real, I, did, I couldn't understand why I was depressed in San Diego. <clears throat> I was walking around. Everything was very pretty. <clears throat> it was my first in, um, experience of an American suburb the place where he lived. Uh, th there, were, there were no loiterers. There were no pedestrians. There were just very pretty houses. Um, <clears throat> I was, and I couldn't understand the reason for my unhappiness. Then I went to New York and I smelt gasoline and uh, urine <clears throat> and saw uh, people 
pushing past. And I felt revived. <clears throat> and, and, and I thought, uh, well, this is what my escapes to Calcutta meant to me and have meant to me when I would go away from, my, from the tall building in which I was living in Bombay <clears throat> to Calcutta and uh, encounter something <clears throat> that comprised the unfamiliar within the familiar and something that was in process. So modernity, I do not think as a state of complete development, but a state which allows process and incompleteness. Um, so th this is, I, I would say, where I encountered this first must have been in Calcutta during my visits to Calcutta, and where my view from my uncle's flat sorry, my uncle's three-storied house, were other two-storied or three-storied houses. And this taught me how to read James Joyce, the Dublin in, in Ulysses and Dubliners, and it, it taught me how to view the Les Enfants du Paradis, Marcel Car Carnet's film, where the man brings a woman to his house and they're aware of what's behind the window of the other tenement. And this idea of the unfamiliar in the midst of the familiar and glimpsing something which is close at hand but foreign is what I understand by modernity and it's, an, it's a language which was given to me by my encounters with Calcutta. So whenever I don't find this, I, I, I mean in cities where I don't have the possibility of encountering life in that way, I do, get, uh, I do get kind of restive, and, and it's, it's as if I, <clears throat> I need, need something, and my fix is the modern. That's, that's, the, that's my fix, and like an addict, I know where, where it exists and when it exists and when it doesn't. But when I see it, when I, when, when I find it, when I encounter it, like an addict, I'm immediately revived, I come back to life. I want to briefly now. So I'm going to now look at quotes I have typed out on several uh, sheets of paper and try to make sense of them. Um, the first two have to do with culture, and this is uh, I just happened to read this, or maybe reread this <clears throat> a few days ago. Um, the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah. A Reet lecture, the first of the Reet, his Reet lectures, um, querying the idea of uh, Western culture, Western civilization. Is there such a thing, he asks. Um, and he goes back to two quotations, which for him are important quotations or important ideas, formative ideas to do with culture. <clears throat> the first is, Matthew Arnold's idea of culture as, as, as a high kind of civilizational practice or, or agglomeration of practices. So poetry, dance, classical music, etc. The aesthetic realm. What, what he, his quote from Arnold, Arnold's 1869 <clears throat> Culture and Anarchy is, culture is the pursuit of our total perfection 
by means of getting to know on all the matters which most concern us, the best which has been thought and said in the world. So already here, though, there is a kind of hinting at a, a larger inheritance of culture than is usually admitted when culture is identified with a nation. So he's speaking, speaking about his right to the best that has been thought and said in the world. And in 1869, this is important for Arnold and for, for him to rethink what culture is because he's a man much moved by texts from other parts of the world outside of England, including the Bhagavad Gita, which is a, a very important text for, for Arnold. What Arnold says in 1869 is an echo of what um, Bengali citizens in Calcutta, um, and this, this I owe Rosinka Chaudhary for this and various other bits of information about the 19th century and Bengal, what um, wealthy Bengalis went to see the Chief Justice in Calcutta in 1816, and the Chief Justice is writing about this in a letter to somebody in England, that they wanted to set up the Hindu college, and which was the first college of its kind in, <clears throat> in the colonized world, in Asia, but wanted it to be set up along lines which, were, which went beyond uh, what might be un understood to be an oriental education. So apparently they said, and this is something that Arnold will, will echo decades later, we will take that which we find good and like best. So they too, uh, um, are in a way precursors of Arnold's relationship to what that moment is opening up in terms of availability and how we conceive of culture. <coughs> Following on from Arnold, and these are, uh, these are the associations that are coming to my head as I read the first of the quotes about culture that Appiah mentions. Following on from Arnold and his saying, um, the best which has been thought and said in the world, which is, I suppose, a big thing for an Englishman to claim, despite the, the kind of uh, the, the creation that's ongoing of empire. It's still a big thing to claim, and, and a radical move, not just a, an acquisitive move, but a radical move. And we understand the radical nature of the move by looking at the Bengalis in 1816, but also Borges, I think, in 1951, um, many, many decades later, talking about the Argentine writer and tradition in the, in the essay called The Argentine Writer and Tradition, where he also is making a radical move in connection with what, a, what culture might be as an inheritance and raising and provoking us to question our ordinary ideas of ownership, which are so latent in the way we conceive of culture. Who owns this? Whose culture is it? Um, so this here is Borges. Now, remember, Borges is not 
speaking to the West. He's speaking here to his Argentine contemporaries. He's rebutting them. He's engaged in a debate with them. The debate has to do with the fact that contemporary Ar Ar Argentinian fiction in his time had very, at that point of time, very clear ideas about what constituted authentic Argentine features in Argentinian writing. And there was, a, there was a kind of fashion to do with gaucho writing at that time, which he's refuting by saying Argentine, firstly, that Argentine writing, in order to be Argentine, doesn't have to have any clear markers of being Argentine. And secondly, it might have an, a strange, radical re relationship with world culture, which challenges ideas of ownership, what's Argentine and what's not. So this is Borges. What is our Argentine tradition? I believe we can answer this question easily and that there is no problem here. I believe, I believe our tradition is all of Western culture. And I also believe we have a right to this tradition greater than that which the inhabitants of one or another Western nation might have. That's the provocation he's making. We have a right to these traditions more than they do. But he's making it not to them, but to his contemporaries. So we can see that um, far beyond writing back to the empire, etc., etc., there are all kinds of moves being made in order to create an idea of culture which uh, subverts ready-made ideas of authenticity and ownership. And maybe Arnold is, is, is <clears throat> carrying out similar moves as he formulates culture. So he's not just laying down the law. He's having to kind of explain what his relationship to world culture is as an Englishman. So, the, the, so you have Arnold's uh, definition of culture, and then the second definition that Apia mentions is the founder of cultural anthropology, Edward Bernard Tyler's definition. And that's the kind of anthropological idea of culture that we are familiar with. Culture is that complex whole which includes knowledge, belief, arts, morals, law, customs, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. So it's everything, basically. It's not just the, the classical music or, or, the, or the cathedrals. It's, it's everything we do, the, the, the clothes we wear, but also all our profane everyday activities. Appiah claims that uh, there's possibly a fusion somewhere in these two ideas of culture in the West, <clears throat> where culture is seen to be synonymous with the West. Culture becomes Western culture. But the inheritors of Western culture become also includes people who know nothing in the West about Western culture. So if, if, uh, if culture is everything, as Tyler says it is, um, then the person who 
according to Appiah, listens to Beyonce or whatever, has never heard of uh, Stravinsky, can also lay a claim to that being their culture, because there's been a fusion at some point in this idea of culture related to ownership. As an Indian, I might maybe know um, more about, let's say, uh, theoretically speaking more about Stravinsky uh, or Mozart uh, than, 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 than a Western person who might know more about some everyday aspect of their culture. Uh, but I don't have that ownership which the fusion of these two cult ideas of culture gives to uh, the Western person who may know no nothing about the Arnoldian sense of culture, the cu sense of culture as formulated by um, Matthew Arnold. So, th so the question of ownership then is key. Whose culture is this? What is culture? Un uh, even as we formulate what culture is, we're also saying something about who owns it. And maybe the same can be said about modernity. That modernity is essentially Western modernity. Modernity is a synonym for, for the West. But um, if, we, if we actually look at various meanings of modernity and various ways in which it has existed in the last 200 years, it would seem to be a kind of conversation which complicates the idea of ownership. I've already quoted Borges, and Borges is just one instance of somebody trying to complicate and overturn the idea of ownership, or how we conceive of whose modernity it might be. But first, let me, let me look at, since I've said the, in my title, the problem of modernity, let me look at some definitions of what modernity, some possible definitions of what modernity might be. And the first definition would be that modernity is progress, that modernity is where we are now, it's the present time, modernity is the future, modernity is a form of historicism, that is, it, it's, it, it, it believes in us getting better and better and moving towards a, a future, you know, where things will get better. The future is there to kind of realize unrealized uh, uh, goals and ambitions. Uh, the, uh, the flip side of the coin is modernity is bad. Uh, uh, we have lost something by becoming modern. The more modern we become, the more we lose something that's valuable. That's the flip side. That's the other, the obverse of this, this idea of, of modernity. Modernity could also be a sense, uh, uh, an idea of empiricism, of rationality. And uh, rationality through which one could critique all kinds of things, including the idea of modernity, including science, which is one of the features of modernity. One could uh, um, use that sense of the rational and sense of the empirical to study the past, 
to enter into the disciplines of history and the social sciences to study cultures from the point of view of the rational and the empirical. So it, 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 the modern looks at the past as an archive and from the point of view of a rational critical standpoint, a secular rational critical standpoint. That's another meaning of what it means to be modern. There's another meaning, and this meaning I'm, uh, is the one I'm interested in, mo uh, modernity as a, <clears throat> in connection to what I said earlier about Calcutta and New York, as a phase in which incompleteness and fragmentation is privileged over completeness. Modernity seems to be a, a time as for, uh, in which artists, filmmakers, imaginative artists, writers, it seems to have been a time in which they have argued for the importance of the unfinished over the finished, the jagged and the rough over the polished, the fragmentary over the complete. The whole aesthetic position of modernism and related movements within modernity, which critique, in fact, modernity's kind of investment in progress, critique um, that investment without necessarily turning to a utopianism to do with the past. That is, modernism doesn't say, we don't like what's happening now. There was a golden period behind us. Let us try and recreate that golden period. The, uh, modernism is, eschews that kind of utopianism and puts in its place, in the place of a, a complete past, or a whole, organically whole past, or, a, or even a, an unbroken rational consciousness, the idea of fragmentary consciousness, and, the, and, and let's say the idea of the ruin, to, to look at a ruin, is of more interest to a modern than to look at a monument. Modernity is the, is, is the time that creates, among other, other things, the figure of the flaneur, as theorized by Walter Benjamin, where Benjamin says, why was the flaneur born in Paris? Why does the flaneur belong to Paris? It's because Paris is not actually, according to him, so much a city of monuments as a city of slightly derelict urban settlements, roads, neighborhoods. Um, and he says this is why the flaneur had to, be, had to belong to Paris rather than to Rome. Because Rome is the historical, historic city, the city of monuments. And Benjamin says, history is junk to the flaneur. The flaneur is not interested in the monument and in history. 
and in looking at the monument, what he's far more interested, what absorbs him much more, I think the examples he gives is a weathered tile and a doorknob. So the weathered tile and the doorknob inverts the idea of what history is. Just as earlier we were looking at the inversion of idea of ownership. For the Flaneur, um, the Vatican or the Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal are not history, they are junk. But junk is history for the Flaneur. That's the inversion that goes on over here to, to, it, within the space of the modern. This is something, this, this lineage is something that I'm very interested in, that, that modernity made a space of this kind which was uh, aleatory, uh, informed or shaped by in, indirection, um, and anti-utopian. There is a, there is, even within modernism, of course, there is a conflation with the vocabulary of progress. So you will hear people talking about the latest avant-garde movements within the arts. That's how a lot of the 20th century was defined. People were talking about the new in the arts, arguing for the new in order to get rid of the static and the dead forms, but often the new was conflated with development. And it seemed that development in that sense was taking place in the West. The West owned the modern, and the West was a place where developments in the modern were taking place, even if we look at it in the domain of aesthetic experimentation, which on one level uh, critiques uh, development by going towards the undeveloped, semi-developed. Impressionism and post-impressionism are examples of breaking down the developments created by the Renaissance, breaking them down and undeveloping them. And yet, when we speak about Impressionism and post-Impressionism, we often speak about them in the language of development. This was a new development. This was a new experiment. This was something new that happened. <clears throat> Connected to these, to these kind of moves, to do with positing the fragmentary against the complete and the importance of these moves, positing the, the, the importance of not knowing, the importance of loitering, the importance of uselessness over the useful, of loitering over going somewhere, of the fragmentary over the complete, connected to this, is a kind of um, fight against a hegemony. But the hegemony here that modernity is fighting against is an internal hegemony. The hegemony is not outside. It's often the self, often consciousness itself. The linearity of consciousness is often under attack. The, the, consci the consciousness is what we have and we query it, we interrogate it as, as being somehow external, 
as somehow being a construct taught to value certain things and we begin to uh, if if we are if we are quarreling with with that hegemony of our consciousness as the idea of stream of consciousness does we begin to value disruptions and discontinuities within the consciousness rather than what the consciousness is as a whole those disruptions and discontinuities become of much greater value in this quarrel the the the, the quarrel with the internal hegemony that modernity and modernism comprise so as i reminded you borges saying what he did was aimed at other argentine writers it's a quarrel he's having not with the west but within within his own cultural milieu now there is a there is a problem with modernity in india in that it's 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 a word which which is which is uh, which which is seen with suspicion uh it's 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 a uh, it's a tainted word and it's tainted because it's seen to be um synonymous with derivation and the foreign and often there is a view that modernity is something that we borrowed from the west and there are historians who um have spoken about how india had its instances of early modernity and these instances of early modernity are pointed out on the basis of an idea of modernity as given to us by the west to deal to do with individualism the emergence of the individual rationality in social contracts etc and these historians will point out based on such ideas of modernity that there were there are instances of early modernity in india but then something happens in india we have almost the only instance of an early modernity where there is no late modernity in in other cultures in other uh, discussions of early modernity the early modernity leads to something which then becomes fully formed modern in india modernity is something that was interrupted by colonialism and then we had colonial modernity which somehow derailed a pure modernity a pure indian modernity which could have happened if colonialism hadn't happened so you have these instances of early modernity which are i suppose instances of pure indian possibilities of the modern which never become fully formed modernity and so you 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 have this astonishing nostalgia for a pure mod- modernity in india 
and modernity which never happened, but which, which was disturbed and then made impossible by colonialism because after colonialism, it looks like the ways in which we became modern were ba basically derived from outside, brought in from outside, and therefore not to be engaged with, especially at this point in our history, we cannot engage with those forms of modernity. Our, our longing for a pure modernity, a pure Indian modernity, precludes our engagement with, with the nature of modernity that happened. <clears throat> when we look at Actually, when we look at the artists and writers in the, in the modern period who are making various kinds of moves in the interests of what I've just told you earlier, which is this internal critique, this internal hegemony which is being attacked, the privileging of the incomplete and the fragmentary over the over the complete, when the Indian artists and writers are making those moves, they are making allies wherever they can in the past. So it, it could be, so when, when we say that this writer is, or artist, is rethinking through his work the Indian past or is engaging with the West, what is actually happening is they're engaging with that bit of the West, or that bit of Indian art, which furthers their agenda to do with the incomplete. So for, 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 a, for a painter of the Bengal school, a painter like Binod Bihari Mukherjee, the incomplete frescoes of Ajanta become central. So he, he's, not, he's not looking at everything in the Indian past as being useful to his agenda. What, what is revelatory to him, because of his investment in breaking things up, in fragmentation, are those uh, ajanta, incomplete, difficult to see paintings within the caves. Similarly, when we look at an engagement with the West, we will find very particular decisions being made about which part of the West is being engaged with in the interests of, the, of that particular agenda. And this is happening in both directions. Arnold is engaging with the Gita because the Gita gives him an idea of detached action an action which you undertake for the sake of the action without thinking of the fruit of action, as the Gita puts it. Arnold says, this is what criticism is. Criticism is not objective assessment. It is a form of mental action which is both passionate and dispassionate. It has no immediately quantifiable fruit.
There are, there are various moments one could look at here, including Macaulay's minutes. We don't have enough time. Um, but uh, Macaulay's minutes, I would encourage you to uh, have a look at uh, his, his, his kind of presuppositions and erudite and eloquent uh, uh, um, arguments about culture and, and his, his Trump-like kind of cultural uh, insanities. Uh, in that in that minute, but but it's 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 wonderful to see how those were um, overturned by people like Arnold and Tagore. Uh, but also, it's interesting to see uh, in what ways the legacy of Macaulay has kind of survived with Nehruvian, uh, partly with Nehruvian uh, secularism. And and one of the main ways, one of the main things articulated. By, by the Macaulay's minute is the idea that certain modes of knowledge, certain languages become outdated. He, he speaks about the Egyptian hieroglyphs. He says there's no point in educating people in the Indian languages because, um, you know, uh, these, these are outdated languages. And there are certain forms of uh, knowledge which become useless. So uh, he makes it very clear, and I think this, is, this part of Macaulay's legacy is important everywhere makes it very clear that there's a question of cultural ownership, but there's also a question of usefulness of culture and usefulness of knowledge. And education must be about knowledge that is useful. And, and uh, uh, Arnold, in invoking the Gita uh, decades later, is talking about a detached knowledge which has no particular use when he's speaking about criticism as a particular kind of activity. And this whole idea of uh, an action which is passionate but, 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 but which has no clear outcome. Then through the notion of impersonality also becomes central not only to what was important to uh, Arnold which is criticism but to creativity. Eliot and Flaubert all strenuously argue, argue for the creative event being a strange kind of event, which, which seems to be an expression of the self, but which is not. It is something else. It ex exists in a different space whose, whose, whose purpose and outcome aren't clear except the need not to express oneself. Tagore becomes a proponent of uselessness in many ways. He begins by... He, of course, as a, as a child, uh, hating school, not going to it, studying at home. Uh, so refuting the very pedagogy that was put in place by Mac Macaulay. Um, he, he recasts Kalidas as a modern. One of the things that Macaulay says is... Um, Sorry, I must. Uh, I've never found one among them who could deny, this is the Orientalists, that a single shelf of a good European library was worth the whole native literature of India and Arabia. So, one of the things he's talking about when it comes to the West and its mark of mod modernity and civilization is concision. Uh, Indians are, and the Orient is verbose, uh, it, 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 it gets into overwriting. Uh, Western writing is by nature 
inscribed, concise, precise. And uh, um, among, many, among the many refutations of Macaulay that uh, um, Tagore consciously or unconsciously undertakes is his recasting of Kalidas as the fundamental poet, as is the case with Sanskrit poetics, of compression. And he says, well, Kalidas can do in five words what uh, Shakespeare would take 50 words over, and he critiques Shakespeare for being verbose. So this, this is uh, one of the moves that, that uh, um, Tagore uh, um, creates. Um, I must mention uh, Tagore's essay on children's nursery rhymes as an extremely important essay in the history of this other modernity that I'm talking about where the random, the aleatory, the unfinished, the Im unimportant plays such an Im important role in how we conceive of culture and the self. And he does this in his essay on nursery rhymes, 1894, the first instance of a writer mentioning the stream of consciousness as an idea. So the stream of consciousness as an idea is put out there by William James around 1891, I think. This is 1894. 1894, Tagore uses the phrase nitto prabahito cheto in the midst of our daily flow of consciousness. Why is he saying this? He's saying that our minds are linear. The adult mind, he says, is linear. It goes on and on and on. It wants to reach a particular goal. But he's been collecting Bengali nursery rhymes not because of archival interest or because he's a historian who wants to create a store of oral culture, but because the Bengali nursery rhymes, he thinks, makes place for random consciousness, random movement. So he says the daily flow of consciousness will pick up all kinds of random trivial matter like a river does, branches, leaves, etc., the adult consciousness will filter that out. But the children's nursery rhyme in Bengali makes space of this unfiltered consciousness whose movements are random. And th th this is one of the first instances of a case being made for this, for this other space of the modern, where the random or the onabashuk the word he uses, which is the superfluous, is given a place. Remember, this is done in argument with an inner hegemony. The, the, he is not arguing with the colonizer. He is, col he is arguing with what he calls the mind. This sub he calls it this substance called the mind, which is so invested in moving on and on and on towards goal. Against this, he posits the onaboshuk, or the superfluous in the daily stream of consciousness that is, that is embodied in these nursery rhymes. I think what happened after independence, and especially in the last 25 years, and some of these thoughts are in my head also because of the, for me, distressing election results in India, and, and, and also my, 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 my kind of um, 
my sense of distress too about the inheritors of secular modernity in India. And I think in the last 25 years, the secular modern in India became more or less an Anglophone person. And, and the English language was used, and everything connected to the English language and in education was used uh, in the instrumental way, which long ago Macaulay had suggest, suggested was the right way of using knowledge. The, the connection with the Indian languages was wrongly cast as being necessary only for the requirements of authenticity, cultural authenticity, and a connection with the immemorial and the traditional. But the Indian languages were always the new languages. It wasn't the English language which was the new language in India. Bengali was a new language because of the way it conceived of modernity. Bengali was very unlike, let's say, and Bengali is just one example I'm giving. You could say this of many other languages, which emerged in the 19th century not as a form of Gaelic, that is not as a form of the expression of identity or nationalism, but as an expression of that ambivalence which we call modernity. So what, whatever Yeats and Joyce had to do as artists to express this, they did in English. They rejected Gaelic because it would have constrained them. Bengali's turn from English took to Bengali and created not a language of identity, but a language of this ambivalence to do with the modern. And, and this took us out of a utilitarian uh, uh, idea of knowledge and language into a far more unpredictable space in which also uselessness played a role. The role of uselessness for the Anglophone middle class in the last 25 years uh, is, 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 is something that is not, has not been addressed. It has no role. Uh, um, only, only the useful forms our idea of what knowledge is and what modernity is and what, secu what the secular is. But the secular is not only useful, it is also a space for responses to do with the useless, to do with the inconsequential, to do with the in insignificant. This will play a very, very small role in the Anglophone imagination of the last 25 years or 30 years. Um, I, I regret the, the loss of a particular kind of secular modernity in India in the last 30 years. And I, I, I regret a almost professionalized understanding of the secular. By professionalized, I mean over here somebody who has to reiterate the same thing, the, the importance of the same thing again and again and again, and never be distracted from it into an area of value whose, uh, whose language and whose presence is not ready-made. A, a, a sudden disruption, sudden openness into an area which could be misunderstood as being useless or 
mysterious or unfathomable, uh, those, those areas have been more or less marginalized from an understanding of knowledge and of the secular as something we almost professionally understand for being one particular thing and which we then repeat again and again instead of allowing us ourselves the, the actual unpredictability of the history of secular modernism or secular modernity. And, and this has, I think, created a kind of intellectual bankruptcy, a sense of hollowness in, in the secularism that is a professional position, far removed from the more, more random world which secularism or, or the secular and the modern encompassed in various Indian languages. Okay, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Um, let's see, we've got uh, a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. So um, does anyone want to signal, first of all? Okay, just wait until the microphone comes. And if you just say who you are and, and you know where you're from institutionally, if you're from somewhere for our podcast audience. Thank you. Um, hello. Um, thank you very much for that very interesting and stimulating uh, talk. It was very enjoyable to follow you, your thought process, and the issues you were going across. Uh, my name is Donald Ide, I'm a development worker, ex-LSE student. Um, what I found uh, really interesting, the point at which I joined in was this statement that you made about, if you like, this hierarchy of consciousness, particularly when you were talking about Macaulay. And I think you did not, to a significant extent, um, elaborate enough about the power relationships, because he was, he was not just distinguishing, he was also evaluating and creating hierarchies between different forms of knowledge. And that, that is what I think um, is also, if you like, the problem of modernity for the, for the post-colonial as we go on, because we are not always able to completely take our place within that conversation that's taking place. So at one time, if you look at Eliot, for example, the consciousness which is fragmented, it's, it's kind of universal. He takes from the marginals, he takes from all different cultures. but that conversation leaves out the other. It leaves out, uh, I think it's an unfinished conversation. And I think that's the, the sort of the power relations is, is, is the difficulty we have in getting back into that conversation because you always end up speaking from the margin. I just, thank you. Um, I, sorry, if I had a question about that, it was what's the place of the sort of chronology about time in the conversation? Because you, you were skirting around the issue, but I think that is also important in terms of making sense of the fragments and, uh, and, what's, and how the margins speak back to the center of that conversation going on about what is culture and who creates it and what's it all about and what's at the edges of that, of that conversation. Thank you. So, um, so uh, you know, uh, uh, what I'm trying to do here is, is, is maybe uh, depart from the, the model of the margin and the center. Um, and we can come back in a second to whether this model 
also has and continues to have uh, validity. It certainly has um, it certainly has centrality. It's had this model, margin center, has had centrality intellectually, academically, professionally in the last 30, 40 years. There's no doubt about that. And therefore, uh, centrality, legitimacy confers a kind of validity. But I'm trying to move out of that. Uh, and, and we'll come back uh, in a second as to whether it will always have some validity. But uh, I think one of the ways I'm trying to move out of it is by looking at the whole idea of the internal critique and the idea that whoever you are, in whichever part of your culture, the internal hegemony for the creative, imaginative person will always be more powerful than the external one. And the moves that will be made will be made because of the constraining nature of the internal hegemony. And when the moves are made, affinities will be formed which are unexpected and not necessarily always um, ethnically or racially legitimate. You might make, make all kinds of affinities uh, as, as you critique the constrainment of, of this internal hegemony. But from the outside, you would say that, well, what, what do we mean by internal hegemonies? Because um, they are basically different sorts of cultures. And some cultures are modern, some cultures are secular, other cultures are religious, some cultures are predominantly now fundamentalist, etc., uh, etc. Et but then the, the, the way we encounter things and the way we encounter even art or, uh, objects often will need us to revise uh, what we use as a model with which to understand the position of that art ob object within a culture. So I watch an Iranian film and I think to myself, oh, that's, that's great, I really like that film. I put into my subconscious the fact that I like it because I like um, non-narrative cinema. I put that to one side. Um, but then I, then I think, I like the film, if I think a little bit more about it, but I don't like it because it tells me more about Iran. But that, that's the way I'm, I've been taught to understand my encounter with an art object in a, in a different culture, that it tells me a bit about that culture. So no, it's a, it's a sense of recognition, but what kind of recognition is, is it? It's, it's, not, it's not the recognition of Iran and India being alike. No, it's the recognition of a person who likes non-narrative cinema encountering a culture that has produced persuasively a non-narrative expression of the imagination. But then I don't think any more about it. 
I've put, I put it to one side. The fact that this is not about Iran, this is not about Iran being like India. I put aside the fact that there must be multiple locations of argumentation against narrative that produces these things from further afield than I would have thought of. But you know, Shotujit Rai, Satyajit Ray, the Indian filmmaker, had a similar feeling when he saw Kurosawa for the first time. He expected to see a Japanese film and to have it confirm certain ideas of what Japan was like. But then he found himself responding to it. He was really ready to respond to the Japanese qualities of the film. You know, to, 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 a, to a putative Japanese film being shown. Then he realizes that what I'm responding to has nothing to do with it being Japanese. But it's not to do with it being a universal art object either. It has again to do with his particular approach to the image. There's another kind of Japanese film he may have had no time for if it did not fit into his position as a filmmaker coming from his milieu to do with his own argument and the argument of those before him in Bengal to do with what, the, what is the image? What is a moment? Am I looking at creating a narrative or am I looking at creating a succession of disconnected moments, which is what Ray went for. He found something similar in, what was the name of the film? The one with the three narratives uh, of the same um, story. No, no, I'm talking about uh, Kurosawa. Rashomon. So he saw Rashomon. And he responded to it on another level. Now this other level opens up the question to do with why, what are the argumentations in my culture and what are the argumentations in that culture that are making this encounter a meaningful encounter? And then, then it raises the other, further questions to do with then what is culture and what did I expect? What, what are my actual expectations of Japanese culture? Who am I as an Indian? If we, if we have to put these, these ready-made concepts to one side, how then do we make sense of this particular um, map of argumentation? If we look at things only through center and margin, then we already have an idea of who's on the margin, who's on the center, and how these things work. And then the argumentation is, is always with somebody outside. It's not with me, it's, it's them. Um, for the left, it might be the right. For the right, it'll be the left. And there are any, any number of such configurations. What I'm talking about here is, is a different kind of map. And from time to time, we become aware of the, the, the points in the map. The points in the map make us aware of the insufficiency of the language we have to deal usually with a map of the world which deals with uh, concepts like east and west, north and south, uh, margin and center uh, more recently. I, I'm interested in finding a language for this other map, it's a very important one for me. Okay, um, let's have another question. Yep, just wait for the microphone again and say who you are and so on.
I don't think it's working. Yeah, mate, just wait a sec. This, this bloke will fix it up. It's not the right day for these machines. <laughs> yep, there we go. It's, it's working. Uh, good evening. Uh, it's been truly a wonderful evening listening to Amit Chowdhury. Uh, I'm Anshu Berry. I come from India and from Kolkata. I say Kolkata in Bengali, they say Kolkata. Uh, we are referring to here as, as Calcutta. So uh, while Amit Chaudhary was finding um, unfamiliarity in a familiar culture, what I'm finding today evening is familiarity in an unfamiliar place. And I'm truly enjoying it. Thank you, sir. Uh, That's very kind of you. Thank you. Very, very impressed with your thoughts. Um, to me, what I've imbibed today is disruptiveness. In, you know, when we encounter something in a disruption, manner and which leads to a self-development or a kind of recognition or cognition that I've been able to do something better than what I was doing earlier. Prob probably that would mean moderni modernity in a true sense to me. Thank you. Like, like um, we've um, adapted to WhatsApp in a big way in India. Hmm. Yes, we have, definitely have. We are very social by nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have to, you know, WhatsApp to each other living in Calcutta, uh, well, we have uh, some members in the group who would type a Bengali message, but in an English script. It's well understood, well communicated, since we've grown up with English as our first language in India. So to me, that is modernity. Hmm. To me, that is ownership. Yep. I'm, I'm sort of also trying to draw the, the idea of modernity into s somewhat different areas, but I can see what you're saying. So for me, it's actually finding in a, in a, um, in a very independent environment, uh, where I'm allowed to do something and ending up in, on a good uh, result in a disruptive environment. Okay. I would look at that as being modern. And that change is very important for humankind to be able to move, you know, change is constant in our lives. And when we look at modern thinking, we're always looking for a change. It's, it doesn't matter, East or West doesn't matter. It's what makes me happy, what makes me have a sense of development is what I look at being modern. Thanks very much. I, yeah, I want to get you. in a few more questions. Did you want to respond to, to these comments further? No, let's, get, let's some, get some more questions. Maybe. A few more questions. Yeah. Thank you. Um, who else have we got? Yes, this gentleman at the front, please. Paul McGraw, Peace News. You touched briefly on film. And I'm wondering why, why it is that um, in the past, say, f f five years, we've seen films coming out of Turkey and Iran, which, um, which are, are quite interesting and actually probe the, um, the identity of, 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 of the... Um, well, they were very insightful. I found them very insightful, They're, at, at both as films and as, as, a, as, a, as an... In, uh, an insight 
into those cult- what's happening within those cultures. And yet, for some reason, even though the Indian film industry is much larger, I spent three years in the early 70s in India, and uh, perhaps I'm wrong, but I'm just, I'm sure about the Bollywood um, monopoly, as it were, all the dancing and, and whatnot, that's, that's probably not as strong as it was. But I, I've always found it um, uh, sad that the, that it, the, the Indian film, uh, they don't see, at least they don't come to London. They don't actually touch on the, 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 the situation, which the, shall we say, the, the friction within India itself between the modern and now with the rise of Hindu nationalism and all that. Can you, can you explain to me why there isn't Indian f- directors making um, top quality, non-dancing, non-musical Indian films? Okay, well, <laughs> I don't know what you want. Well, um, <clears throat> you, you began by talking about Turkish and Iranian cinema. I've only seen a bit of Turkish cinema. I've liked what I've seen. Um, and and uh, I have seen a little bit more of Iranian cinema, but then about three or four directors, you know. Um, I, uh, what, what has struck me <clears throat> about Iranian cinema uh, was, uh, what, what struck me was, was um, a particular quality uh, um, privileging um, the art of filmmaking uh, as a as 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 a as not a narrative art necessarily as Hollywood have has predominantly had it, and uh, so uh, but but I, I I'm I'm imagining that uh, that there would be followers of Hollywood in Iran. I'm imagining that they would form a majority. Uh, I, I, I don't think that uh, all the Iranian filmgoers uh, are fans of Kiristami or Makmalbaf or Jafar Panahi. So I'm imagining there's some kind of a positioning going on there. Something opened up, something was argued for. I, I do not buy completely the, 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 the story that uh, given all the, all the constraints to do with religion, uh, Iranian filmmakers had to make use of children and the child's point of view. Because the child's point of view is being used uh, in, a, in, a, in a very, uh, often in a, in a Proustian way, uh, to open things up. So, uh, so, what, what, so the film represents to me something about the culture and about the world that I don't know but which I find exciting. And, and that is not the culture of Iran, as I said earlier, uh, but, but a, new, a new sort of uh, story of, 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 of modernist decisions in creativity in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, I'm also interested in the audiences and, and uh, of, of these films, both in Iran and in America and in India, and what it is that they're looking for and what it is that opens up for them. Because it's very important that something open up for us when we view something, let's say from Iran or America or England, that goes beyond a confirmation of our expectations of 
our cultural expectations, that something else opens up. And something did open up in this, in, in this case, I think, and continues to with Turkish cinema. What is that conversation? With, 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 uh, with Bollywood, uh, with Hindi cinema, there is no, um, there, there is no kind of blanket uh, way in which we can uh, define or understand the idiom of song and dance. Um, th- there was song and dance, mm. and there was um, what the in the fifties and sixties the the most artistic of the directors who worked in Hindi cinema, which at that time was still not called Bollywood, called picturization, by which they meant the the the, the imagining of those moments in which uh, the singing and the sometimes the dancing takes place. And in the 50s and 60s, these are moments of great uh, imaginative, uh, you know, um, visualization, cinematic thinking on the part of, of the director. Not every director, but certainly some of them. Uh, they are very unlike Hollywood musicals, which are really a form of theater, a form of Broadway on screen. If you look at, if you look at what's happening in a Hollywood musical, there are people are in a, in a set, and you can see it's like a theatrical set. In, in, um, in Hindi films in the 50s and 60s, uh, they're out in the open, and uh, there's a fair amount of stillness, actually, not a whole lot of choreography or huge amounts of people dancing away. Uh, the picturization becomes an occasion for creating a, a, an image. So within, uh, so actually within a, a, a quite a narrative-driven plot, it might be that the song and dance actually serve as imagistic and cinematic interruptions. This happens a lot in, in, in the cinema of the 50s and 60s, that there are moments of interruption where uh, nothing is happening. The person is singing. The music is hugely innovative. The lyrics are extremely interesting. There's a, maybe a breeze disturbing the, the woman's hair. There's a close-up. Lighting is at play. An image is being created, an interruption in narrative is being created. And that's the role of song in, in that cinema at that time. In the 80s, it becomes different. It becomes far more you know, orchestrated, choreographed. So, you know, uh, and I, right now I would say uh, Bollywood, if we are to use that word, has a, a branch of extremely interesting independent cinema within it. Very, very irreverent, very, very alive, very, very interesting. It's up to us to recognize it, to, to, to look for it, to find it, to, to re- see it for what it is. Okay, yes, please. Just wait again for the whoever's got the working microphone. Uh, 
hi. Uh, my name is Akriti. I met you last November at King's as well when you came to launch your book, Origins of Dislike. So it's the second time I'm seeing you within a span of a year. I'm really happy about that. So thank you very much for your talk today. Um, I just had a question about the fact that you had mentioned there's an astonishing nostalgia about the way in which um, people in, in, like, the modernity in India was interrupted by what was known as colonialism, and had that not interfered with the early modernity, we would have witnessed something known as late modernity, which would have resulted in an end product of the final modern situation, as it were. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you, what, according to you, uh, would be moments of the emergence of modernity in India? even if that constitutes part of the early modernity that you were talking about? My yes, my understanding of, well, I mean, within, <coughs> within the period of colonial, what's called colonial modernity, what actually happens is a complete unfettering of modernity from Macaulay's understanding of modernity uh, and education as being basically instrumental tools for a particular kind of progress and for people in India to become sort of interpreters of uh, the West to India and India to the West. Complete unfettering from those aims to create a separate domain uh, to do with, uh, often with the unpredictability of the imagination and revaluing things, including what is useful and what isn't. So within the last 200 years, there's a radical kind of argumentation to do with what is useful and what isn't useful, as in other parts of other, other narratives of modernity. Um, I mentioned only one, uh, Tagore's essay on nursery rhymes, which is one of the earliest anywhere of this kind of whole um, reinterpretation of, of the useful, uh, of the importance of the superfluous, or onaboshuk is the word which he uses. Um, my, my understanding of what of instances of modernity and other instances of modernity and early early modernity would would be um, would have to do with um, a, a different set of parameters from what the historians of early modernity in India have been looking for, which would would be to do with Western ideas of what modernity might be manifesting themselves. At, at a different point in history. Uh, my, my, um, one, one, of the, one of the interesting expressions of modernity for me would have to do with the emergence of and the shape that Indian classical music takes. Indian classical music and the, the way it tests, even in India, what are supposed to be Ordinary forms of communication, like uh, like in, in, in a bhajan or in a song, you sing something, the words are understood, they are responded to. All this is completely mauled in, uh, in Hindustani classical music. The words are taken apart, they become unimportant, they become phonetic sounds only used in the service of rag and tal. And therefore communication is put to one side. Communication in the conventional sense. Rag itself, you know what is, a rag is a tune, it's a melody. 
but it is also the ability in the hands of these practitioners for the in in khayal in indian classical music for this melody to be stretched and probed and questioned infinitely and to be deferred its closure to be deferred infinitely these are i would say instances of of the non representational of the modernist uh impulse informing uh, our arts um another another example i would say uh, are these paintings from maybe the early 19th century i think they were commissioned by mansing there was a there was a there was a um there was an exhibition in london called the garden and cosmos there were two different uh sets of paintings with different patrons that were being uh exhibited i think maybe for the first time in london and one had to do with the rains and 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 the world and the other had and 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 the garden and the other had to do with the cosmos and man's relationship to it and apparently uh, the commission happened because mansing the king who commissioned them was himself a uh, a, a devotee of 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 a mystic sect so in in those in those paintings you see a tiny individual afloat in a mass of nothingness it's one of the earliest predating by some decades let's say turner's paintings of train and steam etc and everything else that's about to happen to break up painting into basically something like between thing and nothing uh, early 19th century i would say this is a manifestation of of this kind of um argumentation with representation which i think of as the modern and which comes so much from outside of the west and which the west is doing business with in its quest in its own argument with what it's inherited from the muscularity of the renaissance the muscularity hype the muscular hyperrealism of the renaissance which it wants to throw out which it wants to leave behind uh and and it there so you have instances of this in india um of course you have the embrace in india of the opposite of neoclassicism in in kitch starting with before kitch with raja ravi verma deciding to paint the gods and goddesses of indian mythology as neoclassical figures and then the neoclassical uh, uh, legacies embraced by calendar art and kitch and to a certain extent by the thing, the genre called mythologicals in hindi and other cinema and then of course now by the bjp as well who who embrace which embraces neoclassicism and the renaissance in its understanding of uh, of hinduism where where hinduism is uh, the, the you know the epics and those texts are no longer interesting for the reasons that they were interesting to tagore for their register their their the ambiguity of register their metaphors their poetry but because uh, they they show that indians practice plastic surgery uh, or uh, uh, knew how to fly, fly airplanes uh, the 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 metaphorical side of language is of no interest to 
to a neoclassicism, renaissance-loving Hinduism that we see today. Okay, well, um, thank you very, very much for that. I'm afraid we've come towards the end of our time. Um, thank you so much for an erudite talk. I mean, we've been thinking, I think, about modernity, and you've made a case for the importance of a particular version of modernity, one that's based on the fragmentary, the unfinished, the, the rough over the polished, as you put it. And then having sort of looked at how that relates to Indian culture, you came towards the end to make an argument which is rarely heard and is important, I think, that the, we should place value on things that are not in themselves determined by the criterion of usefulness. And that's an argument which um, applies to many of the points you've made, but maybe beyond as well, certainly within the walls of the university. So thank you very much again. Can you join me in thanking our speaker, Amit Chaudhry? Thank you so much.